Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us at this big tech event. I want to thank Commissioner Carr for joining us and uh, introduce him. Uh, So Brendan Carr is the Commissioner of the Federal Communications Commission. He was unanimously confirmed by the U.S. Senate for that job. Uh, He previously served as the general counsel for the FCC and was a former litigator of First Amendment issues and the Communications Act. So he has the perfect background to talk about these issues. So big tech and censorship, this is an issue that has been facing, that Americans have been facing every day. Uh, Congress has held several hearings on it. They've introduced bills on it, although they haven't uh, gotten anything over the finish line yet. Meanwhile, states are getting involved. Just yesterday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill to allow Floridians to sue big tech companies. And uh, on the market front, we are seeing companies, new companies, trying to compete with with some of these uh, bigger, well-known companies. So let's dive right in and turn to the fir- go to the first question. So you have watched closely what has transpired over the last five years in terms of the lack of trust shown both in public polling, uh, the hearings on Capitol Hill, at social media companies, and some of the larger players in tech. What's your general view on where things stand for the future of free speech as it relates to technology and what's at risk for conservatives? Uh, Well, thank you so much, Lori, for the invitation to join you today. Uh, It's great to be back in an almost full, regular environment. I'm used to giving these uh, Zoom presentations now where you look out at the blank screen and you can't really tell if the audience members are falling asleep. Now I just get to look up and see the, the handful of people here to know for sure that they are falling asleep while we are having this conversation. But I appreciate uh, your voice on these issues. I uh, really appreciate uh, Heritage's voice on these issues because I think you know freedom of speech on the Internet is such a vitally important uh, issue going forward. And I think you put your finger on it. Uh, we have seen a, a significant shift when it comes to freedom of speech on the Internet over the past couple of years. It's almost as if we had a, a 1.0 version of social media and we've shifted into sort of a, a 2.0 version, which is much more dystopian. If you flash back, you had Facebook and Twitter and other companies holding themselves as representatives of the free speech wing of the free speech party. It's how they originally pitched it. You had Twitter coming out and saying they don't discriminate against political ideologies. And by and large, for a long period of time, you saw social media platforms that abided by those representations. And we have seen a significant shift over the course of the last couple of years. You had the Wall Street Journal editorial board come out a couple months ago and um, call out all of the uh, discrimination that we're seeing against conservatives on social media. Um, That's not an institution, the ed board, that reflexively uh, would step into an issue like that. So I think there has been a significant shift. And I think it's part and parcel of what we're seeing in this country in terms of a retreat uh, when it comes to free speech. There's been this very liberal movement that we've seen uh, from you know political actors to big corporations themselves that are trying to shut down ideas that don't fit within their political orthodoxy. And so I think one reason we have seen this is that 
big tech grew and amassed an amount of power in control over speech that we've never seen in history. And it did so because of a blind spot, I think, in both Democrat and Republican thinking. And for conservatives, so many uh, we're reflexively against taking any action when it comes to a large corporation. They thought there's nothing that conservatives can do consistent with our principles to hold big tech accountable. And I think that's simply not true. I've laid out a couple of ideas that I think we can um, pursue to do that. Uh, so I think this is an important moment for conservatives to stand up for individual liberty. We've been very, very focused on the threats that come from government. And I think uh, a lot of conservatives have been slow to see the threats to individual liberty that come concentration of power in the hands of large corporations. Yeah, we are in a different world, to be sure. Uh, you had talked about things being shut down. Let's talk about a, a, a big example of that, and that is the removal, removal of Parler. Um, they were removed from, the Apple's, from Apple's App Store, uh, from Google Play, and then ultimately from uh, Amazon Cloud Services, um, and therefore removed from the technology stack entirely. What do you believe needs to be done to promote free speech and throughout the technology stack? There's a number of concrete steps that we can take uh, to avoid the scope and degree of censorship that we're seeing right now. And the problem with people that advocate for shutting down speech is, is really twofold. One, censors are either merely bi uh, sorry, either merely fallible uh, or they're biased. And we're seeing that just this week. Um, not long ago, if you were on social media talking about the potential uh, for the coronavirus to have escaped from the Wuhan lab, you were likely to get deplatformed and shut down. We had fact checkers that would run stories purporting to debunk that. It was not something that you were allowed to even talk about. Well, a year later, we're seeing a lot more mainstream interest in that story. I think that's a small example of why we need to promote more speech, more ideas, a diversity of opinion. And the example that you talked about having to do with uh, Parler, another uh, internet infrastructure. We are in a situation now with a concentration of power where you can pull the plug from a cloud service provider, uh, app store, and you can effectively silence uh, any entity from being able to use those vectors. And it used to be that people would say, well, uh, just build your own. But you can't really build your own uh, app store. You can't build your own uh, cloud infrastructure, particularly given the dominant power that these entities have. So I think the path forward is one where we need to look holistically at the internet, uh, not just at sort of internet service providers, but let's look at cloud providers, let's look at edge providers, and if the concern is how do we maintain a free and open internet, um, then I think we need to look holistically, as you pointed out, at that entire stack and see who has the incentives uh, and the ability to engage in discriminatory conduct. So also, these companies have been in the news uh, bowing seemingly to some in interesting and, and some dangerous masters. For example, Apple's been in the news lately for essentially acquiescing to, to Chinese demands, while at the same time China has certainly been uh, rightly accused of um, terrible treatment of, of, of Uyghur Muslims, among other issues in China. Twitter's been accused of throttling traffic uh, at the demands of the Russian government. So how can these companies label content by U.S. users as misinformation, disinformation, and then at the same time seem to bow to some of these uh, dictatorial regimes? The hypocrisy that we're seeing here is, is quite stunning. You know, look, Silicon Valley has no hesitation uh, telling the rest of America what you know, values we should hold, what speech is permissible, 
But the second it comes to turning a buck in a, in a country of a billion people, notwithstanding the ongoing genocide that's taking place in communist China, um, it's very, very different standards. And I think it's, it's disturbing to see uh, the reports. I think The Atlantic maybe had a piece recently this week or last week talking about uh, the role that Apple is playing potentially in sharing information with communist China. And I think all of this just goes back to we need to do sort of a fundamental rethinking uh, of our approach with respect to these types of, um, of entities. One thing that I've called for at the FCC, for instance, is um, taking a, a tougher stance with respect to all of these devices, whether it's Apple or otherwise, that are coming into this country, uh, and really vetting to make sure there is not slave labor, forced labor, anywhere in that supply chain. Uh, and I've put forward some ideas at the FCC that would allow us to do just that, and I, and I think we need to do it. I mean, if you look at what's taking place right now uh, with the Uyghurs in uh, the Xinjiang region, I think we're going to look back two or three years and, and people are going to wonder why we didn't do more faster. Uh, and I think the FCC has a role to play there to check the supply chain to make sure we don't have forced labor there. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult uh, task for sure. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Facebook. They, they seem to indicate a willingness to um, have regulation. They've created this oversight board, uh, which was in the news recently ruling on uh, the removal of, of former President Trump from the platform. Um, and then this board admonished Facebook for um, their vague standards and, and seemingly to, to make up the rules as they were going, at least in this particular case. Uh, what's your view on, on the oversight board construct? Um, should it be viewed as Facebook self-regulating? Can that be trusted? Anyone that has been following the oversight board, uh, which I have been for about a year now, uh, knows that all along it was, it was a joke. You know, we have just finally uh, hit the punchline after all this time and, and no one's laughing. The reality is that Facebook set up this oversight board to try to operate as a heat shield to deflect the political heat that it was taking for its own uh, content moderation decisions. And what was uh, slightly humorous, if you can call it that, uh, from the Facebook Oversight Board's decision is they basically rejected uh, being used as a heat shield for Facebook itself. What was interesting from the decision they handed down uh, with the appeal from President Trump is a couple things. One, the Oversight Board said that they asked 46 questions of Facebook to help them reach a decision here. And Facebook itself told the Oversight Board to pound sand on seven of the questions and only answered two uh, partially. So there's not much real accountability that can be um, imposed there when you have the company itself, you know, funding the oversight board, picking the first batch of uh, people that are going to be on the oversight board, and then refusing to turn over information that the supposedly independent board needed to make its decision. The other thing that was interesting to me was they called Facebook for having essentially vague standards. They said that the vagueness didn't pose an issue in that particular case, but there was something that they had flagged. So it's pretty interesting when you set something up to try to deflect political heat, and all it's really done is to highlight um, you know, the, the mistakes that Facebook has been making. And I think it's important to pause here and recognize there are really important efforts ongoing to try to hold big tech accountable. Uh, the Republican leader on the House Energy and Commerce Committee, Kathy McMorris Rogers, has laid out a big tech accountability platform and is working through those issues. I think that could be one really important um, avenue for bringing some greater accountability here. Yeah, we definitely need more transparency. I mean, how, how can users um, shape their behavior to rules that are unknown or ever-changing or inconsistently applied? 
Um, so let's talk a little bit about Section 230. So during the Trump administration, he had um, put forth an executive order calling for clarity around Section 230. And then recently, uh, the Biden administration rescinded that executive order. Um, there, is, there are various bills. Congress has looked at this. But the two parties seem to want reform for, for diametrically opposed reasons. So what do you think um, can be done, if anything, regarding Section 230? Are, are these companies still um, in line with the original intent when that section was put into place? Have they gone astray? Can they be put back into the, the box of the original intent? Good question. I think the, the recent rescinding of that executive order uh, operated as a big gift to big tech. And when you look at the petition that was filed last year at the FCC, in which is still pending at the FCC, the actual petition from the Trump administration, they put forward several really important reforms, Section 230. And I think those are ones the FCC should still take up. And if not, I think Congress should take action. And I also think that increasingly the states need to fill the void of a lack of action. DeSantis took some action. Texas is looking at some legislation. And I'm very interested in seeing where, where those efforts go. In terms of 230 reform itself, there's a couple of concrete things we have to do. Uh, first, there's now, two core provisions of Section 230, C1 and C2. Uh, and C1 basically, is, as I interpreted or would interpret it uh, through the FCC, should apply to decisions to leave content up on the Internet. Um, I have no problem with C1. The way that operates, thumb on the scale in favor of more speech. If a user posts something on your website, that person that posts the content is liable for it, you the platform or not. That makes eminent sense to me. The challenge comes with respect to C2, which has been largely read out of the statute, in my opinion, by courts. And this is something that Justice Thomas recently walked through uh, in a couple of his decisions as well. In my view, we should take a look at C2 and say C2 is the provision that applies if you're going to take content down from the Internet. And what that means, C1 is applying to decisions to leave speech up. C2 is applying to decisions to take speech down. You can still take it down under 230. Uh, but you need to do so consistent with the narrow terms in 230C2 itself. So again, the upshot there is a is a thumb on the scale in favor of more speech, and I think consistent with the statute, putting entities to a pretty high hurdle if they want to remove the protections of Section 230, not just pursuant to their bonus protections of Section 230. I think that's in the main what we need to do on Section 230. But Section 230 reform is just the start. There are a number of avenues of reform that we need to pursue above and beyond 230. Uh, one is transparency. This could be something you do through 230 reform. It could be something that the does as well. For instance, at the FCC, we impose transparency obligations. So if you're an internet provider and you're going to block or throttle or discriminate, you need to make very precise disclosures. And then a violation of those disclosures uh, can be enforceable by the FCC. I think that same regime makes a lot of sense for big tech. I think there's also actions that we can take to hold them more accountable. Uh, oftentimes what we've seen is, again, going back to this shift that we've seen over the years, this representation to people, come here to this platform, use it. You know, we aren't going to discriminate against you based on your political ideology. And yet it turns out um, that it appears very much like that's taking place. And so this reform is about restricting the First Amendment rights of big tech. It's holding them accountable to their representations, just like we would with any other business in this country. 
Uh, so I think there's a number of reforms we need to do. 230, more transparency, greater accountability. And the last piece is user empowerment. The entire purpose of Section 230, um, as written into the statute, one of the purposes was to empower users to have the tools to make their own decisions. Uh, and so I think we should let people opt out of these bias filters, these fact checks that are being applied, uh, and make their own decisions. If you don't particular content, then you can block a user, you can mute a user. There's a lot of myths that people have been in terms of trying to maintain the status quo with Section 230. And one of them is saying if we engage in reform, uh, the internet will devolve into a cesspool. Um, and while it's tempting to respond and say, well, have you seen the internet recently? I don't think that's a, a full answer. Part of the answer is user empowerment. You can not follow people, you can mute people, you can block people. content moderation decisions, we've gone way too far uh, into giving too much power to big tech to make those decisions with the bonus protections of Section 230. How do you think it has affected uh, the market in terms of small companies trying to compete, trying to get in? Uh, would the repeal of 230 hurt them? I think there's ways that we can engage in 230 reform that focuses on the entities that have dominant positions in the market um, that are abusing that dominant position. If you're talking about, you know, a comment section on, you know, some random website, I'm not sure that there's the the scale uh, in the in the market position to justify the types of regulatory action I'm talking about. But with respect to the entities we typically associate with big tech, I think that's where we should uh, be focused on and take action. In terms of the FTC's involvement, <clears throat> how do we avoid enlarging bureaucracies even more? Uh, whether it's FTC or FCC or, you know, another agency in terms of um, content moderation, um, preventing censorship. You know, this is one of, of several areas where I think conservatives have to grapple. We have these, you know, uh, principles that we have consistently applied. I think people have had a hard time understanding, well, how do I apply these principles to the threat posed by big tech without jettisoning those principles? And I think one of them, again, has to do with this idea that you know we embrace free enterprise, we embrace competition in the marketplace. I say absolutely, yes, we do that. But you know, crony capitalism is not free enterprise. And when you have uh, these institutions now that are benefiting uh, from Section 230, there's a need for reform. And your question about um, you know enlarging bureaucracies, I think, is the same type of a thing. We have these entities that have amassed you know power that we've never seen. There is a gap right now between the accountability for big tech, which is basically none, and the power wielded by big tech, that gap is like nothing that we see for any other industry. So just like we have entities that are, you know, cops on the beat that are regulating all sorts of aspects of the economy to make sure competition, um, there's a role for the FCC there, there's a role for the FTC there, and I don't think that, you know, flops us over into an embrace of, um, you know, a, a expansive bureaucratic state. I think holding big tech accountable is something that we can do um, without going too far in that direction. So some are calling for using antitrust measures to to break these companies up. You know, as conservatives, we're skeptical of, of using that um, outside the scope of harm to con consumer welfare. Um, what are your thoughts on antitrust measures as as a tool in the toolbox? 
I'm not convinced that we need to fundamentally change the standards that are used for antitrust. I know there's a very active debate going on in that, so I, I'll let that debate uh, play out with the antitrust experts. But I do think that this is something that we should look at through the lens of you know, competition policy. Um, from the FTC in particular, you know, there is a long-running line of you know, unfair and deceptive business practices. I think a lot of the conduct we've seen from big tech falls into that. So from a competition policy perspective, I think it's more applying the existing precedent to these entities than it is necessarily fundamentally changing uh, uh, the law when it comes to antitrust. Let's talk a little bit about algorithms. Um, the, the companies frequently point to algorithms as um, being responsible for uh, sifting through the, you know, the volumes of, of content that's coming in and, and the algorithms um, catching or filtering for, for moderation. Um, but you know, someone's coding the algorithms and they're doing so at the direction of, of someone in the company. So um, what should the public know about, about the companies and the use of the algorithms? A couple points there. One, under existing law, Section 230 says that you get these protections if you as the website or the provider uh, did not contribute even in part to the development of that con content. I think there's a very good argument that if you look at the uh, uh, the way that the algorithms operate today versus when 230 was first put on the books in the, the 1990s, that the degree of involvement from the algorithms or otherwise in selecting and presenting that information, there's an argument to be made that the websites themselves are now contributing at least in part to the development of that content. And if that argument is true, then it takes the content moderation outside of 230's protections entirely. So I think that's something that should be explored. I think that's an issue that was teed up in the petition to the FCC that I think we should look at as well. In terms of the other issue of just generally looking at algorithms, saying it's not our fault, it's the algorithm. It's sort of like you know the Facebook oversight board. Well, Facebook set the oversight board up, mm -hmm. so you can't really pass the buck. And the same goes with the algorithms. The algorithms are not you know, dropping down from, from heaven and operating uh, without sort of decisions made by uh, people inside these companies. So the Senate recently held a, a hearing on algorithms, and one of the issues that came up, a lot of concern, is uh, what these companies are doing to keep uh, people, particularly young people, children, uh, and teens online to keep, keep the device in front of them. Um, I have two teenagers, and I know the, you know, with, with staying home, the COVID, um, it, the use has only gone up. So what do you see in terms of um, issues for children uh, and these social media companies? This is one area where one of the branches of reform that I talked about in terms of transparency could come into play. Right now, it's a complete black box. Whether you look at the issue that you're flagging or you look at you know people on social media that lose followers or have concerns about being shadow banned, there's very little ability to check that conduct because there's so little transparency about algorithms. Now, there's a path you could go down to in terms of requiring specific disclosures about algorithms that it becomes Greek to the and is uh, largely uh, not helpful. But I do think there's a lot more we can do to shine transparency on these decisions. And it'd be helpful across the board. A lot of people right now, you know, they're shedding, you know, users by the thousands. And of course, they're having to insert their own theory as to why that is happening, when it could be that there are, you know, legitimate bots that are being taken offline by these platforms, but we don't provide any transparency to let people know what's going on. Why are you losing followers? Um, it, it, people are going to insert their own thinking as to why that's taking place. So I think promoting much greater transparency here is, is a key part of the solution. 
So before we turn it over uh, to Dustin and questions coming from the audience, are there any um, other issues that you would like to touch on just kind of in general or? Uh, no, I think up? this is an important discussion. Again, I think part of the reason why big tech amassed so much power is it arose in this you know, blind spot uh, where a lot of conservatives thought the main and, and to some extent only threat uh, to individual liberty comes from government overreach. And there is certainly serious threats that come from government overreach, and we can never lose sight of that. But the inability for some, particularly those inside the beltway, to see the threats to individual liberty posed by the uh, exercise of undue concentration of power in the hands of the private sector is something that I think a lot of people in D.C. were slow to see, but the tide is turning on that. I think you see um, a lot of guideposts provided by Justice Thomas and some of his opinions. He's pointed to potentially looking at uh, common carriage regulation, to public accommodation law. And I think some of those efforts, particularly public accommodation law, might be an interesting path forward. And I certainly think that uh, it's time for state legislatures to um, closely scrutinize whether we can bring greater accountability to big tech consistent with uh, all of our commitment to the First Amendment. So one, one question regarding states. Um, how do we avoid a patchwork of, of different state laws, or is that not really a concern? You, I'm sure you see this in, in other areas that the FCC deals with. Um, and so what would you recommend to the states to um, get too inconsistent with each other um, without then running into the Commerce Clause in the Constitution? Yeah, the general rule in this area is, you know, state law can't operate in a way that conflicts with federal determinations. And Section 230 has a provision on this point exactly and expressly says, uh, you know, this provision does not preempt state efforts that are consistent with Section 230. And I would say when you have Section 230C2 that expressly says, um, you know, good faith content moderation decisions get this uh, special treatment, that obviously means that there is a category of things called bad faith content moderation. Uh, so I think there is certainly room uh, potentially for states to step in there and, and act consistent with the federal policy in a way that's not going to disrupt uh, Section 230. So I think that's uh, an important piece forward. But again, I think you, you got to look at the hypocrisy that's taking place right now. And you got, you know, um, you know, on the one hand, just this past day or so, you had the Ayatollah Khomeini once again calling basically for the genocide uh, of the uh, the state of Israel, and yet almost no action or no action that I'm aware of has been taken. Um, and so I think it's, it's it's very interesting to see that type of conduct out there. And I think that's sort of further impetus for a lot of people that say, you know, we got to at least hold people to their public representations. Yeah, e even you know, apolitical people are have taken notice. I mean, particularly around. Uh, content dealing with COVID this past year, what's going on, I'm losing users, my my tweets being labeled, um, so it, it's not going unnoticed. All right, let's turn it over to Dustin Carmack, who's the Research Fellow in Technology Policy here at Heritage, and see what questions we have from the audience. Um. One of the questions that we had was um, in terms of commercial viability, uh, in terms of new tech alternatives. Um, for example, we mentioned a little bit earlier, Parler, uh, there's companies like Mastodon, 
Can any of these types of new tech variants uh, realistically cut into some of the behemoth markets that we talk about when we talk about Amazon, the Facebooks of the world? I think promoting competition is always a great solution, and it's one that I as a conservative always embrace. In this particular case, uh, leaning in on competition alone isn't the answer. I think the instances we've seen with the Apple App Store, uh, with the uh, cloud services providers pulling the plug on Parler, you have an upstart competitor, um, and big tech is effectively able to shut it down. And some people say, well, they were, they were allowed back on three or four months later. Um, I, I don't think that's much of an answer. So I think competition is great. Uh, we should promote competition. But there are choke points right now when it comes to um, internet infrastructure from the cloud services perspective, uh, from the app store perspective, that require uh, something more than just competition. Great. We've had a variety of questions that have come in uh, related to essentially the media fact-checking side of what a lot of the social media platforms have gone to. So uh, one of the questions that we had was, how can we out the fact-checkers and their ideologies? And one person brought up the example here most recently. Uh, Wall Street Journal and sub several other media sources now are more mainstream media are reporting on uh, conclusions that some of the IC may have had uh, recently related to the Wuhan Institute of Virology and cases of the lab leak that last year were diminished by you know others against Tom Cotton and others as being false so as they look at this first party versus third party platform idea what what's your view as that relates to 230 yeah thanks I, I ran an op-ed a little over a year ago in the Wall Street Journal that the theme of it was basically disinformation is the new disinformation, meaning people increasingly take these labels and they slap it on speech, usually political speech, that they disagree with it in an effort to try to build consensus around shutting down discussion. Um, to your point, the, the discussion about the potential origins of coronavirus, and I'm not an expert in this area, I don't have an opinion on it, but I do think that these are issues that people should be able to have a free and fair discussion on. The idea that you get it fact-checked and potentially deplatforming for suggesting this a year ago, and yet now mainstream media is starting to talk more about it, uh, I, I think that's, you know, part of the answer that I think goes to the user empowerment uh, portion of the ideas that I've put out, which is how do we let people make their own decisions? Uh, if you want MSNBC to fact-check your news feed for you, great, have at it, click that button. If you want Fox News to do it, Great, click that button. If you don't want anybody, if you just want the, the Wild West version of Twitter, let's empower people to make those decisions because these mistakes have very real consequences. We saw with the New York Post story about Hunter Biden right in the lead up to the election, to some people a, a very interesting and relevant story to the election, to some other people not, but you weren't even allowed to share the story on Twitter. Um, and then there's been more interest in the story you know, after the election is over. I think all of these are instances of why we need to err on the side of more speech because fact checkers are either fallible or biased. And so more speech is better here. Uh, how do you feel about a, a national data protection framework? Uh, is it past time to articulate how our data is collected, stored, shared by these companies? Or is that too much of a temptation for, for government overreach? There's been a lot of interest in Congress on a sort of a comprehensive data privacy framework, and you know those have been difficult uh, discussions to get across the finish line. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of the debate obviously going on right now on content moderation, which is to say there's a lot of interest in it in Congress, 
but they seem to be pulling Republicans and Democrats on opposite uh, ends of the same thread. Republicans, by and large, want to see more speech and less censorship. Um, and in my view, a lot of Democrats in Congress want to see less speech and more censorship. And I think that's one reason why fundamental reform on the content moderation side is going to be difficult to get across the finish line in this Congress. But perhaps there could be some common ground in Congress around things like transparency. That may be an area where there can be bipartisan consensus. Again, that's a piece of the solution to me. It's not all of it. We need 230 reform, more transparency, more accountability, and the continued exploration of these sort of state law consumer protection actions. Great. Uh, we spoke a little bit earlier uh, about what some of the states are doing. I know Texas, Utah, and just recently, uh, yesterday, uh, Governor DeSantis signed into legislation or signed into law a uh, new uh, new piece of legislation down in Florida against big tech. Uh, one of the one of our uh, watchers had, uh, "Do you think Florida's new legislation to prevent political censorship will work? Uh, will it survive legal challenges as many as kind of uh, discussed about in terms of First Amendment speech?" I have no doubt that there are going to be legal challenges uh, to the, the Florida bill in particular. There's a couple of really interesting pieces to it, one of which is the transparency provisions that are in there. In my mind, that one should be a relatively short putt in terms of surviving judicial review. In terms of the other pieces of it, uh, we'll see. But states do have consumer protection authority, and to the extent that what we're trying to do here is to hold these websites, these platforms accountable to their public representations, if they say, look, for all of the content moderation we do for all of the deplatforming that we that we do we don't engage in that conduct for uh, partisan political reasons well if they're making that representation and you have evidence on the other side of it that shows that there's a you know uh, an effect that is discriminatory towards one political party or another then i think you should be able to you know have state laws that allow people to bring those uh, cases forward there's an interesting legal theory put forward by uh, eugene uh, volok he didn't endorse it necessarily, but he, he laid it out, which is to say, if you have a state law effort to uh, promote more speech on the Internet, and if you have a website that claims that 230 preempts that state law effort, you might have an argument that the First Amendment, in that instance, would actually preempt Section 230 to preserve the pro-speech state law. So I think all this is going to play out. Justice Thomas very clearly said that he thinks that it's long overdue. Uh, for courts to take these types of cases up. And so I have no doubt that whether it's this year or next year, one of these cases is going to win their way up uh, to the Supreme Court and get some definitive decisions because we have these, you know, doctrines that, um, you know, need to be uh, clarified in terms of how they apply to uh, big tech. What do you uh, make of today's unholy alliance between big tech and government power? Uh, we've seen you know, these companies bow to pressure by Democratic politicians already. What does that mean going forward, or even when you know, possibly Republicans were to assume power back in the House or Senate? What I've talked about is uh, one of the greatest threats to free speech in this country is not a law passed by Congress, and in part because um, the First Amendment is there, but it's legislating by letterhead. And we increasingly see this at the FCC. There'll be government officials who don't like uh, the political speech of um, coming out of a uh, radio or TV broadcaster, and they'll write letters to the company and try to put pressure on the company to engage in censorship that the government could not do directly uh, consistent with the First Amendment. So I think that's an emerging threat. Again, there's a line of, of Supreme Court cases 
uh, in the free speech context that says if the government is putting a thumb on the scale of a private entity to do censorship for it, then there are circumstances in which that censorship, even by the private entity, can be considered effectively state action. So I think that's another interesting uh, line of cases to keep an eye on. Uh, speaking specifically to your work at the FCC, we had a question saying, uh, how likely is the FCC going to start some of the policies you talked about? How many of your other colleagues uh, would like to see policies that preserve First Amendment online? It's a good question. So the FCC right now is 2-2. There's two Republicans and two Democrats. The petition uh, by the Trump administration for us to clarify Section 230 uh, came in obviously last year. That petition remains pending at the FCC. I would certainly hope that uh, my colleagues would take that petition up and that they would uh, agree with some of the thoughts that I've put forward out there. Um, it's not clear to me that there are going to be the votes for that. It wasn't clear to me that there were the votes for here either, uh, but I'm certainly eager to, to move forward with reform of Section 230. But part of that is why I, I, I refer back to some of the state legislative efforts. Those could be the most productive vehicles at the moment for getting real reform across the finish line. Uh, Jack Dorsey from uh, Twitter has long promised user empowerment going on for years now, uh, even most recently in the energy and commerce hearing he was in. Do you think big tech companies are capable of actually providing it, or is there a need for a younger fledgling companies to start fresh with this kind of ethos and technical characteristics kind of built into it? There's a lot of conduct and promises made uh, inside the Beltway that are merely designed to forestall uh, truly being held accountable. I think we see this with the Oversight Board. Uh, I think some of the presentations made uh, in testimony about increasing user empowerment, it's telling that they've been talked about for years and yet haven't been implemented. So I would welcome Big Tech allowing user empowerment. Again, that was one of the core ideas of Section 230 is it protects not just um, the minimal content moderation that we were seeing back then from big tech, but it protected big tech's giving of content moderation tools to users for the users to engage in their own decision making. And we've lost that balance. So we, we should put additional emphasis on getting back to there. Laura, I'm going to turn it back to you. So on that, um, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg said not that long ago that Facebook did not want to be the arbiter of truth. And yet last year we saw, just in the last year, all sorts of labeling and warnings, et cetera. Is it possible to get the old Mark Zuckerberg back or have the rest of the company won, won out? Well, I, I, I've said this before. Uh, Zuckerberg is right. Uh, Facebook is wrong. So all of the statements that he has articulated in terms of voice and wanting to protect free speech um, you know, a couple years ago, I gave him a lot of credit for that because he, his voice was a lone voice in favor of more speech at a time in which there was a significant retrenchment and endorsement of free speech in Silicon Valley. But flash forward to today, and it doesn't seem like Facebook as an organization has lived up to those public promises from Zuckerberg uh, for political neutrality. And again, Facebook, Twitter, these are all corporations that have First Amendment rights. They are free to express their views. They are free to be in favor of Republicans or in favor of Democrats. But what you can't do is hold yourself out as a neutral platform and engage in conduct that clearly is not. That is sort of the, a version of a, a bait and switch that we would not allow for any type of corporation. So I like the idea behind and motivating speeches, but it does not look like it is translated in terms of uh, actual practice by the, the company. 
So you earlier you made a reference inside the Beltway, and a lot of these promises are made at hearings, but then nothing comes of it by the companies. On the flip side, um, lots of hearings by members of Congress and bills introduced. Uh, do you think that they want to get a bill through and solve this? Do they just want the issue um, as nothing, they're not um, – taking up the bills and, and um, marking them up and, and passing them through committee and et cetera? I'm not sure these Silicon Valley companies um, within their own house are of the same mind with respect to this. I'm sure that there are uh, plenty of people at the top of these companies who would much rather put this issue in the rearview mirror and have a, a, a permanent solution. Um, but one of the things that we've seen, I think in Silicon Valley in particular, is this shift in corporate culture shift has gone from um, pursuing uh, shareholder value to this new trend to pursuing stakeholder value and now towards this most recent trend of looking out for uh, employee base values and that trend line I don't think is a good one because when you start trying to chase after um, the value subset of your employee base in Silicon Valley you're far enough to appease that portion of your employee base, you are uh, eating into your addressable market because you are alienating consumers that may not agree with that, uh, the viewpoints of that employee base, and you are getting increasingly on the radar, rightly or wrongly, uh, of politicians in Washington by engaging um, in the conduct that puts you on the radar. So I think that trend line suggests that there may very well be people at the top of these companies that would want to find a permanent solution and get out of this um, this business, but I'm not sure there's unanimity uh, on that within the corporations. And, and what about members of Congress? Do you think they want to solve this, or do they just want the issue, since they haven't uh, passed a bill? I think so. I think um, when you look at uh, Republican leader Kathy Morris Rogers, she has put forward some very serious reforms and a pathway to engaging in real reform. Now. Uh, the gavel at the moment is not in her hand, uh, and so it's difficult to find bipartisan agreement on these issues. But uh, I think conservatives in particular are very serious um, about engaging in reform, about holding big tech accountable. Um, but again, at the federal level, um, the gavels aren't in their hands at the moment. Any final comments or thoughts in, in wrapping up on this issue? No, thank you so much for hosting this. I think it's been a really important discussion. I think, again, there is a very clear, in my mind, a path forward uh, for conservatives to stand up and speak in favor of holding big tech accountable. We can do it consistent with the First Amendment. We can do it consistent with um, preserving individual liberty. Um, I think a lot of the conservative movement in D.C. has been slow to take up that mantle, but that's changed. I think the last year or so has really been a watershed moment. I think it's part of a broader realignment that's taking place within the party, and I think it's a good thing. Um, you know, it's not consistent with where a lot of uh, inside the belt institutions have been historically, um, but I think it's very important um, for conservatives to stand up for individual liberty when it is threatened by concentrated corporate power. I think holding big tech accountable is just one really important example of that. Well, thank you for your continued um, voicing your opinion on this, both in writings um, and events like this. Um, we absolutely need a bigger public square, not a smaller one, and, and more free speech, not less. So uh, look forward to continuing to watch 
uh, your communications and um, hopefully, yes, we can hold these companies accountable and bring more transparency. So thank you very much.